You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading today comes from Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be back with you here tonight. We spent a week, uh, last week, in our hometown of Denton, Texas, between Christmas and New Year's. Last Sunday, we we were with my old church, thinking through some Proverbs for the new year, and it was a great time to be with that church. Then that afternoon, we spent the afternoon at Medieval Times in Dallas, Hadn't been there since I was a little kid. Our, uh, our knight, the green knight, he was a real shrimp. Uh, he was terrible. He was terrible. He rode his horse like two miles an hour, and he was awful with the sword. Uh, but it was great. It was great. The blue and white knight, he was the man. Uh, it was, it's so good, though, to gather with all of you here, assembled as my family under God's word together. If you've, been, if you've begun visiting Christ Church since the beginning of December, you may not know that we had been working our way through the letter of 1 Timothy. It's a short letter where the Apostle Paul was writing to his young pastoral protege, Timothy. They had together, a couple of years prior, spent a couple of years in the city of Ephesus. And after being gone for many years, uh, they had heard that this church in this city was left in chaos. So Paul sent Timothy there to bring some order to this chaos, and he wrote in this letter with some instructions and commands. Just before Advent, uh, the end of November, we got all the way up to the middle of chapter 2, right up to the threshold of one of the most controversial paragraphs in the whole entire Bible. Certainly one of the most controversial paragraphs in Paul's writings. Paul outlines some distinctive and gendered norms of expectation for life within the church. And like I mentioned before, that paragraph, 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15, is just a minefield. Many pastors have just run headlong through the minefield, uh, perhaps saying some hurtful things, some not helpful things. Many individual Christians and readers have opened their Bibles to that paragraph, walking themselves headlong into the minefield, not having a category or categories for some of the things that Paul is talking about, and themselves not coming out alive, their faith not coming out alive. That paragraph, perhaps being the thing that destroyed their faith in either God's goodness or their faith in the truthfulness of the Bible, with some possible outcomes being that Paul and perhaps the rest of the Bible are just hopelessly misogynistic, 
hopelessly anti-women, and therefore we should just throw the entire thing out. Or perhaps coming to the conclusion that Paul and many other ancient writers are just products of their ancient times, and they don't understand uh, gender and sexuality as we do in an enlightened age. So we should just use the parts that are helpful for us in these letters or in the Bible, and the parts that affirm our current and modern worldview, and then just dismiss those parts that are clearly outdated. Questions and issues of gender difference, though, today have perhaps been never more volatile. At least in our lifetimes, they haven't. The, the field is perhaps more crowded with minds than ever before, and it will take care and precision as we walk our way through it. Right now, gender relationships are perhaps more than ever marked by fear, with distrust, with abuse, with manipulation, and even with legalism. Women are perhaps afraid, perhaps as they've always been, but they also know that this is a moment that they can speak up. Bad men are afraid because their acts, their bad acts are being exposed. Good men are perhaps afraid because they're afraid that their even good acts might be swept up within the bad acts. But all of this is honestly one reason why I wanted us to study First Timothy together. Not just that we might be able to get through this little second part of chapter 2, but that we might study this letter because of this little middle part of chapter 2. I wanted a focused reason for myself to devote some time for study. Like, do we structure and do we order the gendered roles of our church because we're convinced that that's what the Bible is prescribing and it's for our good? Or do we do that because that's just the way that most evangelical churches in America have always done it? And so for the past six months or so, I've been gearing up for this. Uh, I've been reading a lot of books and listening to a lot of podcasts and lectures. Uh, as pastors, we have read and talked and prayed for many, many hours about this conversation. And here's the thing, though. While I admittedly came to this paragraph, perhaps wanting to answer the question, okay, so what can men and women do in the church? What is allowable? I've been, I think, rightly corrected that this was the entirely wrong question to approach this paragraph with. Better questions, I think, after having spent some time thinking through this, are why did God create mankind into two genders in the first place? How are they different? How are they the same? What has he created male and female to do and to be together? Asking these questions and thinking through some of these answers have just like blown open the doors of the categories that I was thinking through and the questions that I was asking and the answers that I was hoping to find. And I'm excited to share some of what I and your pastors have been thinking through for the past many months. So since Paul grounds his argument in 1 Timothy 2, in creation, in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, how God created Adam and Eve and then what happened, what followed, I think it's going to be a good idea for us to take a, a step back, a, a big zoom out for a couple of weeks and look at some created realities of gender from Genesis 1 through 3 together. So tonight we're going to answer some of these questions. How are male and female different? How are male and female the same? And what are the, some of the results of the fall? I was 
kind of expecting to just spend a week on this and then get back into 1 Timothy 2 next week, but there's just too much. So we're going to spend two weeks here. One last caveat, I have so many like sources and voices running through my head and like notes on a computer that I may not be as disciplined in the next two weeks, maybe especially tonight, to like tell you every single time I'm referencing someone else's thought or indirectly quoting from someone. I'm not trying to intentionally plagiarize others, but it might get old to tell you every instance that I've had another person influence and crystallize some of my own thoughts. Okay. How are male and female different? If you have a Bible, turn open to the very first page, Genesis 1. You already heard Liz read a few of these verses, but listen again to chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I think we often come to texts like these and primarily expect to find what it tells me about me or expect to find what it tells me about others or tells me what I ought to uh, hope that society will come to believe even though they don't believe in the God who all of this is about. We tend toward reading the creation account like we are the center of the universe and the center of the story. And we try to read and make sense of our existence as we read. We can tend toward reading these two verses that I just read, 26 and 27, as detached individuals. But the creation account is not primarily about us. It is not about me. The creation account is about God. We obviously jumped into the middle of the creation week where we started. Human beings are very, very late to the party. God has been creating things in distinct pairs from the beginning. There's light and darkness, heavens and earth, day and night, waters above, waters below, sea and land, sun and moon, fish and birds. And then, finally, after this drumbeat of rhythm of created pairs, has been going on since the beginning. Then, on day six, God creates male and female. God is a God who makes distinctions. And many of these distinctions, as he's been creating in pairs, are morally neutral. All of this created difference in pairing is not a difference or pairs of conflict, but difference in pairs of harmony, of beauty, of God's glory. Now, I want to, before we go any further, introduce two terms for you. Many of you are fully aware of these words, but many of you may not be. And many may have assumptions about these two words, so I want to try to clarify them. There are basically two ways of understanding the Bible's view of gender. The first word, you may know it, you may not, is, is egalitarian. An egalitarian understanding of the way that God has designed male and female gender in the Bible egal, equal. It's a sense of equality. So especially, an egalitarian would argue, especially on this side of the cross, uh, just as God has torn down any dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, there is now no distinction between male and female. Any role that a male is able to perform in marriage or in church is 
equally valid or as equally a female role. Now, one assumption that an egalitarian will have, likely, is that any gender distinction will inevitably or necessarily create a gender imbalance, an imbalance of power, which is both in the moment and then generationally detrimental to society and to culture. And if that is true, then surely God would not have created gender to be distinct and different. The other typical way of reading and understanding gender in the Bible is not egalitarian, but complementarity or complementarianism. This is complement with an E, complement, not complement with an I, like, hey, that's a nice sweater. Uh, complementary, like think complementary angles from high school geometry, right? Like there's a 40 degree angle and a 50 degree angle. They're different, but together they make a 90 degree angle. Through difference, they make something whole and complete. So many egalitarians will argue that God created male and female with no distinction, and then distinction only came as a result of the fall in Genesis 3. But I'm convinced that's not the case. Sexual complementarity reflects the cosmological complementarity of creation. It's not a result of the fall that God creates fish and birds distinctly with different biological realities, but it's before the fall. And their difference is not bad, it's actually good. Together, fish and birds fill the sea and the sky. And so a complementarian understands difference that then improves the quality of both. Together, they are complete and whole. But there is difference. There is a vast array of natural differences between the sexes. None of them, in and of themselves, are bad. There are biological differences between male and female, physiological, sociological, cognitive differences between male and female. It's a bit of a dated study, and while we can never say that all of these qualities are true for every man and every woman, uh, the publication Psychology Today, Today found that generally, generally, again, I'm painting, painting with broad strokes here, this is certainly not true of every male and every female, but women generally and typically value rapport while men value report. Conversation rather than what are the facts. Women tend to value relationships while men tend toward valuing individuality. Women support, men dominance. Men, women tend to ask more questions, men tend toward avoiding questions. Women tend toward greater cooperation. Men tend toward asserting themselves. Men are far more willing. Uh, we both probably know this anecdotally and sociological studies find uh, that men are far more willing to uh, answer a question that they don't know the answer to in a meeting, uh, to risk looking foolish. Women tend to think holistically. Men tend toward thinking more focused. Women generally seek to find consensus. Men generally seek to give more orders, and on and on and on. Now, here's the thing. Perhaps, I think, in our very gendered, polarized culture today, I think many of us might have heard all of those things that I say that men tend toward and think that all of those things are bad. But none of those things, with maybe the exception of one or two of those, are in and of themselves inherently bad things. But all of those characteristics that I just described, both female and men, or fe female and male 
typical characteristics can take on a sinful life of their own. Any and all of them. But when we abstract from these realities of flesh and blood, of gendered differences, we remove so much of the life and goodness of God. I saw a stat that, all, that of all current books today on gender theory, there are only 3% of them, of articles, publications, and books on gender theory, 3% of them mention motherhood. Now, being a woman is infinitely more than just motherhood. But to minimize or ignore such a distinct and cross-cultural, historical, uh, historically cross-culturally celebrated norm of femininity, I think is a travesty. Our cultural vision of empowerment means women can do everything that a man can do. That is what it means to be uh, empowered as a woman. The more we think about things like bearing children, that becomes a distraction from women entering the full fray of human work that really matters. To be someone who makes history, you have to be a rebellious woman who fights the way that men do. But who are the women that makes God's history? Again and again, throughout scripture are the stories of women who are bearing children, who are struggling in bearing children, who are struggling against evil tyrants, who are struggling through life experiences with other women, who are struggling with unloving and abusive husbands. Scripture trains us to begin thinking that typical men's actions of battles, of wars, of political fights, aren't necessarily the most important things. The hidden things, the hidden dramas, are just as or more important. Like, where does the grace begin to work? Where does the grace begin to seed and germinate within the people of God, finding its culmination in the person of Jesus, in, like, dysfunctional families, in hidden and quiet and unnoticed things? We are embodied people, male and female. God has created us. And as a human, you look like God. You are in some ways similar to God, but you are not God. With a proper understanding of what it means to be a person comes a sense of humility, comes an understanding of limitation. With a proper understanding of limitation, our our biological sex is most likely the most fundamental fundamental limitation that we ever experience. And it is with us, our biological sex, from the very beginning. When we see in Philippians 2, Jesus, who takes on a male body, he takes on the limitation of both a human and of both a male. He cannot be omnipresent any longer because he is a human, but he can, Jesus, the God-man, can also not bear children as a woman. He has taken on limitation, and that is both okay and it is significant. We are all embodied, sexed humans who bear God's image. Male and female, he created them in his image. And by the way, God created created male and female in his image. They're not lacking in his image until they finally get married or lacking in his image until they finally can have children. He created every human in his image with both full dignity and full purpose to work in his mission 
of making heaven known on earth. But to blur and break down these gendered distinctions is to minimize the goodness and the wisdom of God. Okay, that's how male and female are different. And there will be plenty more to say here in the next few weeks, as well as as we continue to work through the entirety of 1 Timothy. But now, how are male and female the same? While culturally we are blurring male and female distinctions, we can just as easily blur male and female sameness. Think about how we've all joked. Man, I just don't get women. Or I just don't get daughters. Or I don't understand men. Or I just don't understand my son. They are completely foreign to me. I don't understand how the opposite sex functions, operates, and what they desire and why. All of those things. There was a whole pop psychology movement in the 90s that took the country by storm. What was it? Uh, Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. Which according to Wikipedia, I've never read the book. Maybe some of you have. Uh, This book teaches that men and women are from, from distinct planets. Mars and Venus. And that each sex is acclimated to its own planet societies and customs, but not to those of each other. Unfortunately, I think many within the complementarianism camp have also done this. We have so highlighted our differences that we have perhaps now blurred our sameness. You would think that since it's not good for man to be alone, as God observes of Adam in these first two chapters, that he would just create the woman. Or that he would have created them at the same time. Surely God was not... uh, he was surprised to find out that it was good, or it was not good that Adam was alone. He knew this from the, from the beginning. But this is not what happens. God creates Adam, and then he doesn't just create Eve. What happens next? A parade of animals comes in front of him. Adam names them. Adam is taxonomizing them. He is putting them in categories, giving them names and taking on the cultural mandate that we see in chapter, or chapter 1, verse 28 of uh, creating order, subduing creation. Before Eve can be prepared for Adam, Adam must be prepared for Eve. So as the animals parade by, Adam must be thinking like lion, not like me. Platypus, definitely not like me. Raccoon, very cool, kind of annoying, but not like me. Then when God brings Eve in front of him, What does he say? He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, same of my same, is basically what he's saying. Lions, raccoons, platypi, different, 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 different of my difference. Finally, here is someone who is like me, same of my same. The man didn't just need some company. Or as I've heard one gal joke, if all God does is give Adam an elder board, the mission of the church will not go forward. He needs someone to form the world with, to complete God's creation work. And what is the key thing that Adam cannot do alone? He cannot fill. He cannot bring glory to the earth. He can't give mankind and the earth a future alone. He sees the parade of animals and all he sees is difference. All he sees is insufficiency to carry out the mission that God has given him. 
God doesn't just create like a show home in this garden, fill it with some buddies, and then tell the buddies to like take out the work and show some other people his show home. No, he creates a realm of fellowship. He creates a realm of communion, of deep, deep relationship. The woman is not a sidekick. The woman is not merely a helper in helping Adam uh, fulfill his mission. She takes on the mission with him. He is not able to do the mission without her. She is created to do what man cannot do in their difference, together doing what neither of them could do on their own. Now, the key interpretive verse for most egalitarians is Galatians 3.28, where Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But I think we can often maybe write that off as like, oh, that's just an egalitarian verse. <laughs> I, minimizing that and like trying to scrub that one out of the Bible uh, because it gets trotted out so often by egalitarians, forgetting that it is a Holy Spirit inspired for our good and needed for our flourishing verse in the Bible. That while there is still distinction, like Greeks don't cease to be Greeks and slaves, especially if they have non-Christian slayer owners, they don't cease to be slaves. There is still distinction, but there is a flattening. There is an, uh, a sameness that happens when Jesus comes and he makes people their own, his own. Because Galatians 3.29 follows that very verse. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Men and women, distinct and yet same. Equally and fully co-heirs to the same promise, the same inheritance. Women are not there for the scraps or the leftovers that men don't take or end up not wanting. Co-heirs in the same inheritance. The kingdom does not and will not advance without the contributions of women. And if their contributions in our church are nice but ultimately not necessary, then we have a very, very stunted view of sexuality, of gender, and we've ignored the scriptures. Nevertheless, Adam and Eve are created as sexed beings. They are not androgynous creatures who later stumble into or come into their gender as they uh, work it out and figure it out. And I think it's worth pointing out that Genesis 1.27 is immediately followed by 1.28, where God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God creates them male and female. Why? That they might multiply and fill the earth, that they might subdue and bring order, that they might tame the chaos together. There is a quick connection between our gender and the societies which we create. There is no human society without maleness and without femaleness. Civilization and society is in and of itself a gendered construct. 
These kinds of statements in our hypersexualized context make that kind of statement run immediately to like biological reproduction of multiplying, of uh, filling. We run straight to just having kids and that's an important part of it. But sexuality is only part of the male-female complementarity that is necessary for, for a society to flourish. Quickly in Genesis 5, like just a couple of chapters after all this, we read that Adam fathered Seth and he had other sons and daughters. There are now all kinds of other male and female relationships in a growing society that are not husband-wife relationships or even potential sex partners. There are now fathers and daughters and mothers and sons and sisters and brothers and cousins and neighbors. Some of this 127 and 28 dominion will mean refraining from having sex with the wrong people. But within the past six or seven decades, this is becoming an even less and less question that's even allowed to be on the table. Fewer, if any, sexual restrictions undermines our ability to answer questions of maleness and femaleness because we understand less and less how to relate properly to one another in a hypersexualized culture. The creation mandate of verse 28 offers a sexual no. Sexual no. With, within this room, within millions of other relationships that I could potentially have with females, it is one sexual no after another that I might have one yes with Marcy. There will be much to say about the, the family of God in the coming weeks, but I have been so moved to deeper reflection by something that Jen Wilkins said to a room full of pastors when she said, if all you see in women is someone that you might accidentally have sex with, well, then you have a shriveled understanding of God's goodness in creating male and female. In his wisdom, God has given male and female to marriages for their flourishing. Through difference, we improve each other's qualities. But he has also given maleness and femaleness to our societies and to our churches, to our cities, our neighborhoods, for our flourishing. And in the coming weeks, we'll think a lot about how God has ordered the household or the family of God, the church, with spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers, with spiritual sons and daughters, their roles and their work sometimes different, but none of it less valuable, all of it vital and indispensable to the mission of the kingdom of God. So we're gonna, we have a lot more to think about here, but it is good to, while understanding difference, understanding sameness, and what this means for us as a community and as a society. Now, Genesis 1 and 2 is great. It's the created norms that God has given. But like we've said before, how long does it last? A page, right? The rest of the Bible happens after Genesis 3. Things, what are the results of the fall in gendered relationships? Things in the garden are good. Male and female lived. They acted toward and responded toward one another in humility and in love and in sacrifice, service, as their focused will and worship and love was only on God, this spilled out into complementary love and in harmony horizontally with one another. 
God had created Adam first, not in a place of preeminence as an excuse for him to do whatever he wanted and then to demand from others and from Eve whatever he wanted, but he did create him first in an ordered sense of godly strength and of godly leadership, as well as, more next week, in a position to serve, in a position to protect, doing all that he can, even being the first to die himself in order to protect from himself or to protect from outside threats for the good of his family. So the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is given to Adam before the creation of Eve, with the implication being that he would share this knowledge with his wife and then protect the family's continued and right worship of God. Paul will add more insight, which is initially really confusing in 1 Timothy 2 about what happened at the tree in Genesis 3, but Satan comes to this couple and he comes flipping the created order on its head. Even though her husband is standing right there, Satan comes to Eve. And then after the fall, who is it that God comes looking for? Who is it that God comes and holds accountable for this whole scene? He comes to the man saying, where are you? He should have done something. Like David protecting his flock. He should have like recklessly, without regard for his own safety, gone out and confronted and driven away the beast. But he didn't. And then what happens? Adam immediately blames Eve. Eve then blames the serpent. There is suddenly in a world in reality of nothing but harmony and love, now there is hiding, there is division, there is shame, there is brokenness. And then God explains the reality that there will be even more further division between male and female as a result of sin. At individual levels and then at systemic societal levels. And egalitarians are right to point all this out, but it's not that there was no difference before Genesis 3. It's just that now the place of difference becomes a source of sin, becomes a source of hurt and pain. And all humans are subject to the curse of Genesis 3. Left to ourselves, we will, we will only move toward seeking our own interests. Left in this world, we will continue to be the recipients of dominance and an abuse of power. But God does not leave us there. He does not leave the story in Genesis 3 in order for us to fend for ourselves and for us to remain at odds with one another as male and female. God himself, who previously had no body, became an embodied human to live like us, to die like us, to die for us, to take all of our hatred and our lack of love, our distrust of God into himself, to take all of the right and good judgment of God for our hatred and lack of love and distrust of God into himself. To redeem our broken and hurting bodies, to purchase them as his own. The reality is that our bodies need God's grace. All, every part of us need God's grace. And we, there is a, certainly a spiritual sense in which we need God's grace. But our physical bodies need the grace of God. They are where we have been violated or have violated others or have degraded ourselves. Our bodies 
They are where we feel mortality and feel death, pain. We feel the judgment of others because of our appearance or our skin. But God has washed us. Christian, if you're a Christian, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Not your heart, not your brain. Your body, Paul writes. Your male body, your female body is set apart for God, for his service, for your own joy and flourishing. And the story of the Gospels is a story not just about Jesus' teachings or his actions, but about his body. He is born with a body as a baby from his mother. He is circumcised on the eighth day. He is baptized in the Jordan River. He, it is a story about his own hunger and thirst, how he physically touches people and heals them. It's a story about the God-man being punched and beaten, spit upon, crucified, about his body being taken from the cross and buried, about his body being resurrected to new life, about him walking around and eating and touching people again, about his body ascending to heaven and being glorified for eternity. And our bodies as Christians, are caught up in the events of Christ's body. This is good news. If you're a Christian, your body has a destiny. It is a place of future glory. Not just pain and decay. But your glorified body will not just become some androgynous thing. Some human blob. God has redeemed both male and female as co-heirs and there around the throne singing worthy is the lamb will be people from every tribe and tongue but will be people who are male and female. Distinct and yet fully redeemed, fully reconciled with no more conflict, with no more animosity towards one another for eternity. Complimenting one another, showing off the wisdom and goodness of God indifference the same way that he has created different tribes and tongues and languages and skin colors in the same way he has created difference that brings glory to himself through unity but until he returns male and female while God has created them different to improve each other's qualities will nevertheless and because of sin continue to dishonor one another because of difference but I'm convinced that this is where a sacrificial and selfless dying to self-complementarity within our community will be one of the most distinct and rare glories of God's goodness and the gospel to an unbelieving world. In a world that has no idea what is going on, which way is up or down with, in understanding gender and sexuality, this is one of the most important issues of our time for us to understand, think clearly about, and then become as a people. May God help us. This is a good start, everybody, but we've really just set the table 
I'm sure that I haven't even begun to answer any of the questions that you wish that I would have. Uh, hopefully there's something there to chew on this week, maybe in your own thoughts and prayers, certainly within your GCs this week. Uh, before we get to, back to First Timothy, we'll take one more week and try to answer some really easy and simple questions like, uh, what did God create male and female to become together? Was Paul and early Christianity misogynistic? Is complementarianism misogynistic? Simple stuff. Uh, so, would you do me a favor? If, uh, if you are so reminded this week, would you pray for me as I begin to think and prepare for this next Sunday? This is a difficult uh, thing to address and to talk about. I'm convinced it's for our good. And convinced that we as a people can come to love this for our own joy and flourishing. For God's glory, for our own joy. Let's pray that it might be so. Our Father, we are floored by your goodness and your wisdom, just as the profession of faith that we profess together from Paul in Romans 11. Uh, we, we pray that Paul, uh, just being swept up in almost in speechless, um, just not understanding, can't even approach your goodness and wisdom, uh, we pray that that might be true of us as well. But that in trusting you as good and as wise, uh, that you might bring humility, that you might bring self-sacrifice, that you might bring a community-wide dying to self for the good of the other, for the good of us as a whole, for the good of our city, for the glory of God altogether. And we are thankful for your word. Without it, we would be lost. It is a lamp to our feet in a dark world. We pray that you would continue to shine and that you would show us the way. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.